I'm so glad to be part of Bridge Group because women are just more democratic. When even when they lead, they listen. I silenced myself. What are you saying about me? If I'm not honest and good to myself, I will speak because that is the only way. Is enough. Is enough. This is Women Emerging. Welcome, welcome, welcome to this fourth podcast for the Women Emerging Expedition. I am absolutely sure that we all share a sense of anger at the impact that COVID has had on women's careers, at the impact of wars on women's lives, at the impact of the patriarchy on women's place in society. I am also absolutely sure that we all question just how much we can afford to express the anger without being written off. I've decided I think sometimes you just got to let rip. So this podcast is a major half hour long ripping session, a ripping session between us. It's a vent. Um, first me, I was away from the work, the issue of women being the dominant issue in my life for some time. And when I started Women Emerging from Isolation, you used to get this thing, this this first sentence from from a lot of people. But things have changed for women, Julia, in the last 30 years. Girls are more educated. Women are on boards. Laws have changed. There are successful women driving sports and politics. Progress is enormous. And the answer, frankly, is yes, it is undeniable progress, but it is deeply uneven and it's gone at a glacial pace. If you think of what a computer looked like 30 years ago and what a computer looks like nowadays, just think of that just for half a second. Think about that. Think of the speed of change and then parallel that with the speed of change for women. It seems to me there's, it's, it's, there's, no, there's no comparison. It is breathtakingly slow. And in a period where problems have accelerated their pace dramatically, but of course, the world's ability to deal with those problems has not accelerated in any way in the same degree. And the films over the last two years have absolute clarity that even where people claim progress is being made, it's so clearly <laughs> it, it isn't there yet. Just if, if you start by, you know, Denmark, for example, Denmark, a country where we're constantly told progress has been exceptional and women have achieved a whole new level. Well, well, listen to Maria when she was speaking on her Women Emerging from Isolation film. Maria, who's a, who's a young leader in a major global consulting firm, just listen to this. To me, all these myths about women in the Danish society is um, something I cannot relate to. When we look into the labor market, again, we can also see in the 50 largest corporations only three positions, CEO positions, are occupied by women. Three out of 50 organizations, the largest organizations in Denmark, are occupied by women. 
three and fifty, and in Denmark that gives you pause for thought. Then listen to Ellen in in Germany as she talks about meetings, something as simple as meetings, and just what effect they have on her. I would leave the room feeling, yeah, not like I belonged in this room, and like at the same time that we didn't have the discussions that we should have had in this room. The worst part is that we become angry at some point and that we become disempowered and that we feel we don't have the capacity to do and shape discussions and uh, and events ourselves because we never experience it. And we also never give uh, get get credit or appreciation for everything that we still did for these meetings, but then in the situations. Do not be mistaken, Hélène is far from being a blushing flower. I think we've all experienced that feeling in meetings. And the impact of not having women at the table, I don't have to persuade you, but but Faith, who's a, an expert on the circular economy in the US, described it particularly beautifully to me. She was talking about what happens when innovation is left entirely to men. Much today of the circular economy innovation is done by males. When I go in sometimes to these innovation challenges, I'm quite the minority. It's usually a handful of females in a sea of men. And it's interesting because when the innovations come out, they seem to be a bit narrow. A little bit narrow, yeah. So my... um. My rant is over. Now I can turn to other people's rants, starting with Aizata. What women politicians face daily is almost the crudest form of abuse the women leaders face. How could it not make you angry? Aizata is a politician in Sierra Leone and is sure to talk us through very, very calmly in her extraordinary way, just what it feels like. Let's go deep, because you are the only member of the expedition who has held elected office, and pretty senior elected office, um, as a woman. And I think talking to you a bit about that would be incredibly helpful. And, And I suppose my first question is, is a sort of big one. You know, why is it so hard? Why is leadership so hard when you hold political office? Well, um, I think there are many reasons why it's so hard, regardless of the gender. But particularly for women, when we look at what women encounter when they decide to run for elected office and what they can um, affect when they are in office. It's about the big picture. So women in general are most likely to need money, especially in my neck of the woods. So they may not be financially strong to do it by themselves. So making a decision like that, literally it takes a village and the head of the village will be the husband or the partner or you know some, some uh, benefactor that's a family member. So getting that money is also about getting that permission. So in the first place, women are more likely to need permission, quote unquote, from partners or husbands or some family member. And once you're able to do that, it's like you're kind of beholden to that person. So a husband, when 
somebody comes, when the wife comes late from a political meeting, can now decide, oh, this politics is getting in the way and you can no longer participate. And that permission can be withdrawn in a second. So the money goes for the campaign. The, the campaign stops, basically. Or you get into office and you're literally always judged by not what you do in your job, but by how much your family is suffering from it. So all those poor kids who are always being picked up by the nanny or somebody else, or that poor husband who's being fed by, you know, street food or restaurant food and comments like that. And in addition to that, just because the space we occupy, as I say, is about really effecting great change, those who are about maintaining the status quo are going to be after you morning, noon and night. The moment you challenge and decide that you're going to run for office, it's about challenging power. And once you decide to do that, there's always somebody who's going to be against you because to them, it signifies a loss. A woman occupies a seat and wants to do good. A man occupying that seat wants to do good for themselves. So literally they see it as a lost opportunity for them. And, you know, you're going to have a thousand attacks. When we get into the space of political power, the gendered insults are tailored. They're ready-made, you know, they're in waiting for a woman who raises up her hand or raises up her head. So even on the campaign trail, the violence is tailored against us. The words, the insults are tailored against us. The people are tailored against us because they're not used to female leadership. And therefore, it's very easy to get them into a default mode of resisting this woman, you know. So the the, the things we face in that political arena are very much specific for us as women and very much tailored against us as women. From the beginning of seeking that permission, which men do not, you know, a man can come home and announce to his family that he's decided to run for office without any consultation. And he can take the baby's milk money and spend it on the campaign without any consultation. A woman can't do that. So from that beginning where you actually have to kind of make yourself small for people to be on your side, for you to be able to do that job, to the very space you occupy while you're in on the campaign and the, the, the things you have to face, you know, those gendered insults and, and the violence, to being in office and deciding how you're going to act as a woman in politics. Um, all of that makes it very difficult. And when you have a culture where these social norms, you know, are now the culture against women, it's, 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 a, it's a fight, it's a daily fight. But the gender, do you ever get immune to the gendered insults? You'd never get immune to them. The strongest women go home and cry. I'm one of those. There's a public strength that you have to display because otherwise they say, oh, look at these women. They say they want this and then they can't handle it. So in effect, it's like we almost kind of um, pretend as if we don't feel, pretend as if we don't hurt so that we can play with the big boys, you know. Um, but they hurt you the same way as everybody else. And especially when you're out here to do good and you're thinking, OK, doing good is good enough. And like, no, it's not. Because you have people, the very people you're fighting for, the very people you want to change things for, are the ones who are insulting you, are the ones who are attacking you. And um, it, it's, it's not something that you can normalize as a human being. We all feel the same, for sure. And it hurts the same. And what keeps me going is about keeping my mind and my focus on the bigger picture. You know, I always talk about my why. I know why I'm here. And therefore, I know the kind of people who are going to play the resistors against that kind of agenda.
So once you know that, you realize those people will always be the ones who will be insulting you. They'll always be the ones who will be fighting, you know, whether physically or verbally for you to leave the arena. And um, yeah, and my job is to stay on the, on the platform. When you get people who, who say, well, why do we need women in politics? Of course, the first instinct is to say, what kind of fool are you? But then no doubt there have been moments when you've had to make the case. What, apart from, in, to some extent, make the positive things you say, I suspect you can, you know, we can all predict them. In a way, Isata, what's the case you should try to avoid making? You know, what's the dead end argument that, that you want to avoid? Um, for me, the dead end argument really is about numbers. This is not about numbers. This is not about us asking for favors. So gender equity is not about women saying, well, you're there and I should be too, regardless of my performance, regardless of my capacity, regardless of my capabilities or my intentions. It's not the case. There is really a different intention, generally speaking, where women are concerned for sure. But the case is not about do me a favor, make some space for me because I also want to sit there, you know, and um, I don't think it's about asking for favors. And usually when men come back with a counter argument of, well, we worked hard to get here and you should too. um, I think that's what they're trying to insinuate that somehow affirmative action is about favors. Affirmative action is about correcting a wrong, a wrong that has persisted for so many years, like I said, that it has now become a culture. The culture in most of these instances where affirmative action is necessary is because we've had a lifetime of girls not being able to go to school equally with boys. And if we don't correct that, we cannot then expect them to come out at the top as women leaders if they have not had the opportunities at the beginning of their lives. Affirmative action is about making sure that when a girl has the highest score in the whole school or in the whole country, and she can't continue on to secondary school, or she can't continue on to university because of money, her parents don't have it, and therefore they decide to send the boy to school or the boy to university and she stays home, that something can be done positively to influence that because otherwise that's a loss to a whole country. Who wants that brain to not be able to participate in national decisions? Because when you eliminate girls due to lack of access to opportunities, you're really hurting a whole nation. So we are saying that the same brain power that men carry is the same that women carry. And there's no reason why we should not be able to participate in making decisions for our country's development. So we're not asking for favors. We're asking for work. We want to work. There's a lot of work to be done. Not one person can do it. Not one gender can do it. Because the perspective that women bring to the table is otherwise missing. Do you unintentionally start to almost mimic how male politicians lead because the system is designed for male politicians? No. But how do you stop yourself doing that? And wait a minute, let me broaden it out. How do you stop yourself? And how do you stop other women that you see maybe sliding down that route? How do you help each other to make sure you don't become part of the problem? 
I sit all the time and I don't partake in that. And I try very hard to advise, let me say, because in the end, um, certain behaviors are about what we know. And until we learn something different, we can't do something different. So I can't instruct somebody as to how to be a leader. Um, it's not my job, but I hope that by reflecting something different, they'll realize that something different can be done. So for me, I make sure that I don't mimic. My, my idea of leadership is not to bring more men to the table. My idea of leadership for women is about bringing the difference to the table. And there is a stark difference, a valuable difference. So my job is not to get to the table and become another man. It's not what I'm there for. And um, I think a lot of women who do that are not yet comfortable with their nurturing. They're not yet comfortable with their soft leadership. They're not yet comfortable with the difference. They want to not stand at the table. They want to blend in, hoping that would, you know, give them uh, more room or more permission to stay. And I'm there to challenge what exists. I'm not there to mimic it. I'm not there to reflect it. I'm there to show where the gap is. And the gap usually is in, you know, what women can bring to the table. So I am a woman leader, you know, in all its forms when I'm at the table. I'm a mother. Um, I am a nurturer. I'm a carer. Because when you are empathetic and you're a listener, you learn more and then you can give more, you know, when you're at the decision making table. But generally speaking, when we're talking about male leadership, it's about, you know, I'm in charge and I know it all and I'm not listening to unheard voices. And that is not what we need more of. So just making sure that I am that listening leader, I think, makes that difference. And making sure you're consultative because then you're able to bring more people along, regardless of gender. And you're able to include and involve those who are not at the decision-making table, but who will be most affected by those policies that you formulate. So I think all of that is most important and all of that is what's necessary. And in this new post-COVID world, as we're emerging from it, I think what we need to be is gentler with each other so that nobody's left behind, you know, and I think that's what women do the best. Aizata, I am deeply honoured to be on the expedition with you and hugely look forward to learning from you. I am here to learn also because I want to do more. I want to do better. Um, so it's really an honour to have been invited on this expedition with all of these women and I can't wait. Aizata is calm, forceful and focused in her anger. I think you can see why she is so essential to the expedition. Next, we move on to Aisha, who's a child and adolescent psychiatrist in Pakistan. Her anger is expressed in very different ways. So we started with what she would love to wake up every morning and never, ever, ever hear again. Aisha, there are so many expressions we would all like to banish. Give me a few of them. So, Julia, some that um, immediately come to mind is, why are you so angry? You have had so much opportunities. Um, you have done so well. You have been in multiple leadership positions. Why are you still angry? There have been so many men who have helped you on the way. Um, you've been so blessed. Why are you so angry all the time? So that's one thing that I, I just 
don't want to listen to anymore because uh, there are still things that happen that, you know, make me angry and I have my right to, you know, express them as such. You're too emotional. You let emotions come in the way. You take it personally. Um, so that's something else that, you know, I get to hear. And my thought is, of course, it's happening to me. So I will take it personally. I may have a different way of expressing it than something that you're used to. But if it's personal, then I'm, I'm going to take it personally and respond, you know, however way I should. Some other things that I've heard quite a bit, especially in uh, sort of in the space of leadership is, um, and when something untoward has happened is stay on the wicket. Even if something has happened that has been overtly unfair or wrong or unethical or unprofessional, let it go. How about Dr. Aisha? No, Dr. Assad and Mrs. Aisha. Right. So that's something that I've struggled and it's been written about so much as well. And I keep struggling with it. And it's ironic because, you know, I have a husband who's also a physician um, who's sort of very kind of progressive and goes around telling all his students and residents and trainees and colleagues that don't call me Dr. Asad, just call me Asad. And they don't. And patients. And they don't. Everybody will still call him Dr. Asad. And here am I kind of, you know, worked as hard as anybody else to be a doctor, to be in the position that I am. If I, if I call it out, then there is going to be a rebuttal. There's going to be either like, oh God, you are, you know, going on that bandwagon again, or you're, you know, starting this spiel again, or they'll make fun of it. Oh, there goes Aisha again. Um, so there'll be a joke. There'll be joke from my male friends and colleagues and family. There'll be jokes from my female friends and family that, you know, you don't need to bring this up again and again. So the three. But I remember you coming back off a women's leadership stroke empowerment program that you once mm-hmm. did. And mm-hmm. I remember you writing an email to me saying, I was angry before. Now I'm even more angry. And, um, and I went because I was angry at that time. I went because I felt that this was the right time. I needed to learn something. I needed to learn how to navigate this leadership because I was facing microaggressions. I was facing macroaggressions. I was facing harassment. And I really was struggling how to manage um, so it came at a very opportune moment, but I think I left, I, I got a lot of skills, a lot of sort of, um, objective skill, skill set, but one, there was just so much anger in that whole cohort and community. Uh, so I, I, you know, I had just gone as an N of one, but then there was just so much anger and I, I felt that, you know, culturally, I think in some ways, um, we come from a space of, you know, sort of Eastern mysticism, Sufism, Taoism, religion, uh, just the way the East is that you, you accept some things and you let some things happen and go by because you kind of grow up in a space where you know that things are not always in your control. So you only pick things that you can control. So for me, it was very overwhelming. That anger, that sense of that we can fix these things, which I feel is very is a very Western phenomenon, um, that things can be in our control and we should take control and we should uh, you know write our, our own narrative about it. So I think that to me felt very overwhelming. I mean, it was about um, getting to this position. It was about you know that if you are a leader, then this is what a leader looks like, right? And you have to you know there was a sense of this is how you 
you know, compete and this is how you work together. So it's, it's not, it was not that you can be a leader in your own little space of wherever you are. Like you don't have to be in, the, in a formal leadership position to be a leader. So I, I felt that that was hard. And that was also hard perhaps really because, you know, I was reflecting on it that, you know, it was something that I was struggling with. It was something that within me that, you know, I, the competitiveness in me is, um, is, is something that I, I, it's, it's almost like a, sometimes like a monster that keeps growing and I have to, you know, push it back and say, Hey, you know, it's, it's about collaboration. It's about working together. It's about coming together. The world is about coming together because I've grown up again in a very competitive, you know, school system and college system and higher education system. And then, you know, the U S so it keeps, it keeps, uh, and, and, and I think that when I saw it in front of me with so many other, you know, colleagues and friends of mine, it was very much in my face that it made me very uncomfortable. I saw that I don't want it. I, I want to be different. I want to um, work on this uh, within my own space as well. Ambition is fine. It's great to want certain things. It's great to want, have a certain vision, dream and, and work hard towards it. But competitiveness, I think, uh, works against achieving, achievement, true achievement. I think that it, yeah, it, it was, it, it felt like that's the only pathway, which to me felt that, you know, culturally, it, it felt like that wouldn't work, right? And it didn't work. So a lot of what I came back with and tried to implement within my own space in terms of negotiating for something, negotiating for resources or, you know, the kind of, you know, how I was supposed to talk in committees or kind of, you know, hold my stance and stuff, those backfired. I was told by Western leadership, actually, not even, not even Pakistani leadership, but like, you know, sort of expats that, you know, I'm making people angry by this and, or I'm asking for too much or I am being seen as greedy when I'm asking the way I'm asking. The other thing I show is that clearly the expression lean in didn't work for you. No. <laughs> for the sake of the people no. listening to this podcast, you should see the look on Aisha's face. <laughs> <laughs> right so that that didn't Julia and um you know I'd um that time intuitively it didn't sit well because one I it almost felt like a very aggressive stance it almost felt like you know you've got to push to find your space and you've got to you know speak out when somebody doesn't want or has requested not to or whatever it might be there's no seat at the table then find a seat well you know you can request so I felt that there was, um, and I, I myself, you know, had noticed that when people, uh, you know, would lean in, I wouldn't like it. Like it didn't sit well with me. It felt it, you know, I, I wouldn't want to uh, associate very much with that person who was constantly leaning in. So one, one, I think I, intuitively, I felt that it, it just wasn't right for my, for me. And then two also. My sense is that you really can only lean in when when you have a certain privilege, which um, in my case, you know, lots lots stacked against me. Um, in some ways, I'm I'm not white. I'm a woman, so I and you know I haven't grown up with privilege. I don't come from a very you know high socioeconomic sort of start, start status or whatever. So I, it, just, it just feels like it's okay to lean in and people will allow you to lean in if you have that privilege, if, you know, you have a certain accent or a certain skin color or a certain degree stacked up 
um, stacked, uh, you know, with you um, and in your portfolio and stuff. So then it it works fine. But if someone like me would lean in, then that is not taken well at all. It is um, you're told to stop. You are told that you're too pushy. You're told that you're making people angry. You're told that that's not the way to lead. And you're frankly pissing off certain people or making some people very upset. So I felt again that that is a very Western model and we're not very culturally uh, contextualized or culturally intelligent. So first I say, Aisha, that you're pretty sick, frustrated, angry, tired of the standard expressions and that going on a glorious opportunity leadership program, the other side of the world, probably made you more angry, frustrated and annoyed. So when you reflect, do you think we'll see big differences for women in our lifetime? Julia, I, you know, I've gone through my whole gamut of anger, of di- of being tired, of feeling hopeful, of feeling optimistic, of feeling very hopeless. And I think that in some ways, I've, I, you know, my mother's voice keeps uh, <laughs> resonating in my head that you know, nothing's going to come out of it. You're just, this is just a completely lost cause. And I don't know why you keep fighting it and, you know, losing so much energy over this. Objectively, I don't think so. I, I mean, right now, I think being a realist, realistically, I don't think it's going to change in, in my lifetime for sure. My hope is that it will change for the generations to come. Um, it will change for my daughter's you know, lifetime, that generation and beyond, um, that things would look different. And, the, and to me, that is enough of a reason to work on that right now, to, that hopefully in 50 years, 100 years, 200 years, you know, some, some things um, will change. Aisha and I sort of stopped short. <laughs> she, we stopped short when she pronounced the words 200 years. And yes, by the way, she has forgiven me for stopping short. The words 200 years were pretty tough t- to hear. I think the other thing that I found tough to hear was, was when she said that her mother's voice keeps resonating in her head that nothing will come of all of this and you're wasting your energy. I am old enough to be Aisha's mother and and I found those words really hard to hear. And I could see Aisha's face as she said them. So talking to Aisha I, I, was difficult and towards the end my heart was starting to break and the anger was beginning to swell too much and I knew I needed a bit of... Um, Isata's calming down. I also knew what Aisha was talking about on the subject of Western leadership thinking. It's not always helpful and it hasn't even much worked as evidenced by Maria in Denmark, Ellen in Germany and Faith in the US. So I'm afraid this um, podcast is going to sort of dribbled to an end in a mixture of anger and frustration. But I suppose we must not lose sense of what we are facing. I think the expedition will achieve great things in producing an approach to leadership that resonates with women so that more women say, if that's leadership, I'm in. But we need to know just what it is we're in for.
a very long, hard journey. It was a false spring. The wind, the wind has come up. The rain has been pouring in. The sky is grey as anything. You can't hear the birds. Hoping the wind, hoping the spring will come back soon. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Your voice and perspectives are crucial to the success of the expedition, and we would love you to become a partner to Women Emerging. You can do this by subscribing to this podcast and joining the Women Emerging group on LinkedIn.